0: seated. In these winter weeks, when so many of us uh, as today are here and there, traveling in and out, uh, we are studying this short letter of 1 Thessalonians. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be going to chapter 4. We're not going to take the whole chapter this time, since starting in verse 13, he takes up the matter of the Lord's second coming, which continues into chapter 5. So I'll take that up next week. When everyone is thinking of the Lord's first coming, we'll be thinking of the Lord's second coming. Well, today then, 1 Thessalonians 4, just reading the first 12 verses, hear the word of the Lord. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because... The Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And we'll take up the rest next week. Let's uh, pray once more together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we pray that the same Spirit who so inspired these words might continue his work in teaching every heart, in bringing that light, that uh, joy, that conviction, that direction that we so need, each according To his or her need, we pray that you would be with every soul today. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin today with a parable, one that I I hope is not irreverent. It's a a parable that I heard that is going to stick with me as I hope it's going to stick with you. And it goes like this. Uh, A man goes and turns on the radio and begins to hear the music play. And it is quality 1970s disco and the man begins to snap his fingers and to tap his toe, and, and, and he can't help it. He just, he just begins to dance, right? Ah, 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 staying alive. And just then, the second man comes into the room. Uh, the second man is deaf, however. He, he can't hear the music, but he sees the other man dancing and, and swaying, and it just looks like so much fun. He thinks... I'd like to try that. So he joins in. He copies the other man's dance moves and he tries to get the same rhythm and at first it's difficult, but eventually he gets the hang of it and soon the the two of them are dancing in sync. Now the second man, after a little while, thinks to himself, you know, this is not actually quite as much fun as I thought it was going to be, but he, he keeps going. Now, if if you walked into the room and you beheld these two men, you would you would see them and think, well, they're doing the same thing, right? But actually, they are not. You'd be wrong. They are not doing exactly the same thing. The first man is grooving to the music. The second man, well, his dancing is different. It's it, it may look the same, but it's it's not as enjoyable, or certainly not as natural and it probably won't last as long because he doesn't hear the music. His dancing is just movement, and that movement becomes tedious. The first man's dancing comes from deep within him, out of his soul, as the music moves him, as compels him by its rhythm and beauty. I got the music in me. I got the music in me. Maybe some of you listen to other things. Now to explain this parable. The the meaning of the parable is this. Dancing in the parable is the Christian life, a holy life. The dance is our outward obedience to the Lord, the things that we are called to do as living lives, as a holy offering to God. But there must be something compelling inside our hearts, filling our minds, inspiring us, captivating us, Uh, giving us power, joyfully, to offer ourselves to God. You see, unless your heart is captivated by the love of God and by the glory of Jesus Christ, unless you are filled with His Spirit, I say, you can outwardly try to live a life of holiness, but it will end up tedious, uh, frustrating, joyless, merely aping other people. You need to hear... The music, you see. That music for the Christian life was found in the first three chapters of this letter, which we've just studied. For example, from chapter one We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing beloved. Brethren, your election by God. For our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance and so forth. That's the music. That's the music that will get you going and keep you going. And I can't help but point this out to you if this is what you need, then you need to stop and say, oh God, I need that music. I need to hear this. I am dead on the inside, but will you come and make me truly alive, forgiven, renewed, restored? I want to know you and learn from you and follow you. And then you will never have to have a Sunday without hearing that tune. And... I I don't like to have a single Sunday without that tune coming before you that you might be able to hear it because without that, nothing else I say will be meaningful today. I cannot do for you what you most need. You've got to go to him and say, Lord, let me hear the music. Open my ears. And then you won't have to spend another Sunday not understanding what I'm talking about. Or if you do, it'll be because of me, not of you. Okay, all right. Well, I I say this by way of review and a critical introduction. As is his custom, Paul now pivots, turns, to fill the second half of this letter with practical instruction, which we come to in chapter 4. It begins with, in my translation, finally which, as you well know, is no guarantee that the preacher is going to be done soon. The older translation, though, I think is more on target at this point, translating it furthermore, as though to say, well, furthermore, let's press on now and go on to the rest that I must therefore tell you in the letter. Uh, This is the second half, if you like, a life that pleases God, and that does so more and more, he says here. So, We want to know, what is that life that pleases God and that pleases Him more and more? Well, you notice that the note is struck in this chapter very clearly. It is, drumroll please, holiness. And I'd like to consider three things with you today. The definition of holiness, the applications of holiness, and the motivations toward holiness as we consider the exposition of this chapter of God's Word. First, the definition of holiness. The definition. Holiness is the immediate context of this chapter, as you can see if you look just a single verse up. In chapter 3, verse 13, the last words he said coming into this are that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And you know that the word saint and the word holy is the same word, right? One has the German root, one has the Latin root. It's very confusing in English because we turned one word into two. But uh, saints just means holy ones, same word in the original. And similarly here in chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your Sanctification. It's the same word, if you like. It's holyification, if we had that in English. So I'm sorry for the confusion that we, we use two different words of two different roots to translate one idea in the original. In, 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 um, but, uh, but so it is. Same in verse four, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification, that is, in holiness same thing, same word. That word is simply translated holiness in verse 7, just to thoroughly confuse you. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Okay, so no matter what you call it, uh, holiness is clearly the, the, the theme and the emphasis of the chapter, of this section anyway. He keeps on using it again and again and again. But, but what is holiness? He doesn't come right out and say And, well, maybe we're not quite clear on it ourselves. One author writes, when I was younger, most people thought of holiness as grimness. I did not like holy people. Holy people never smiled and never enjoyed anything. In fact, if they did enjoy anything, they felt guilty about it, end quote. Well, uh, I think that's a profound misunderstanding, especially since we sing so often in the book of Psalms about the beauty of holiness. There's something wrong if we think it's not attractive. But let me give you a brief explanation. Among all the ways that the Bible describes our God, none is more often repeated or praised than holiness. That word occurs nearly a 1,000 times in the Hebrew scriptures, and another 300 times in the Greek. For no wonder. God is holy. I think it was R.C. Sproul that first pointed out to me that uh, it's the way that you express things with emphasis in Hebrew simply to repeat a word. When it says that there are great pits in such and such a place, it just says pit pits. There are pit pits there. Not just a pit, but a pit pit, uh, to, to emphasize the greatness of the pits. Well, the only thing that's ever taken to the third degree in Hebrew is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. God is holy, and it's the most wonderful, distinctive, important fact about him, chiefly Also, that we, his children, are called by that name. Same word in the original, saints. Be holy, Jesus says, for your Father in heaven is holy. The basic idea of holiness is to be set apart for God. And so you can have things like places or plates or other things that are holy, set apart. But most often in biblical usage, as you can see from this very chapter, holiness especially refers to moral purity and righteousness in contrast with human sinfulness. Uh, as it has here, God has not called us to uncleanness, but in holiness, using these apexegetically to explain not this, but this. So holiness is what our God is like. And our holiness is just a reflection of God's. We are to be holy as he is holy. Negatively, that means that we are set apart from all that is unclean, impure, sinful. But positively, it means that we are to put on all those divine virtues that are in God himself. Love, joy, peace, uh, faithfulness, goodness, kindness mercy, purity, well, you name it. We are set apart to these things as a special people. And like every other part of the human life, of the Christian life, I should say, uh, holiness is a gift that God bestows on his children in Jesus Christ. I, the Lord, sanctify you, he says. Or Jesus prays, Holy Father, sanctify them in the truth, he prays in the upper room. Or another place, we read that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her in order that he, Jesus, might sanctify her. Cleansing her with the washing of water by the word that she should be holy, without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. So it is that it is the work of the Lord himself in our lives. Now uh, one more comment as we're just talking about definitions a very important definition at this place though this point though is that in biblical usage sometimes it's a once for all sanctification that occurs when God calls a man, woman, boy or girl and sets him or her apart. That is called sanctification, becoming a saint, having a new birth, if you like, by the Holy Spirit. God separates us to himself definitively, placing within himself his own new nature and setting us in a different direction. And it's on the strength of that once-for-all sanctification that we are also called saints. Um, We are called holy ones. Even brand new Christians like these, brand new Christians in the church at Thessalonica are to the saints in Thessalonica. These are the holy ones, set apart, all of them, definitively, right away. That's uh, sometimes called definitive sanctification. Well, um, there is another side of that in biblical usage, another meaning or aspect to that holiness. That progressive aspect, but that is to say, by which we grow, that God cultivates in us, and by which we press on more and more in order to resemble our Lord Jesus Himself. And that is what Paul is calling us to hear in a variety of words more and more, as he puts it that holiness should be our life. And, you know, this is so typical of the apostle to say, this is who you are, now be who you are. He doesn't say become what you're not. He says you are holy. Now be children of God, holy as his imitators. Okay, so the more and more aspect is what's before us in this. Or if I can give you an illustration of this, um, I have a friend in, had a friend in Charlotte named Charles Wilson, and uh, he also had a, a large family of six kids. It was hard to keep anything good in the refrigerator. Some of you can relate. So uh, one time he had a slice of pie that he brought back home that he was going to enjoy later, and he put it in the fridge, some uh, little wrapping and a little sticky note, and the sticky note said, "I licked this, Charles." <laughs> And he was real proud of himself until he came home and he saw that all of his kids had written their names underneath it, too. Yeah. All right. At the very beginning, he had set it apart. He made it his. And yet, more and more as he sat down to eat it, he would more and more become part of that pie and that pie part of him. That pie that was set apart at the beginning and made his own was that same pie that he then enjoyed more and more until it truly became his in a special and wonderful way. So is our progress in holiness. From the very beginning, we are named and claimed by our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have now the joy of increasing in holiness or piety. Uh, Okay. This holiness is what Robert Murray McShane calls the better half of salvation. Justification, the first half, is what makes you a forgiven person. But if you think that forgiveness is the best part, you're mistaken. For, Samuel Rutherford points out, forgiveness may make you happy, but holiness makes you like God. The better half is before us, brothers, sisters let us receive it as such. And therefore Paul did not and would not end his letter to the Thessalonians persecuted and downtrodden as they were merely by encouraging them and reassuring them. No, no, even though they were tender young Christians, he will exhort them more and more in the rest of this letter to be like their God. Now in our relativistic and pluralistic age when Christians find it increasingly difficult to believe that God has a distinctive way of life for his Christian for his for his children we must return to Paul's practical plain spoken emphatic insistence that Christians be holy people in verse 3 it is God's will for you and for me. And I was cutting ribbons this week to read somebody that said that we are at this moment as holy as we have wanted to be. Hmm. Because you see, those who advance in holiness are the very ones that Jesus describes as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is that you? If that's you, then let's press on to the end, as Paul calls us to do in this section. We've considered the definition of holiness, which you'll be relieved to know is my longest point. We are going to take up now, secondly, applications of holiness. Applications of holiness. In the rest of this section that I read to you this morning, Paul gives three important aspects of this Christian holiness, this distinctive life that pleases God. In order sexual purity, brotherly love, and living a, you might say, a hard-working, honorable, quiet life. Couldn't find any one word to represent that, so I'll just put that together before you, for you, uh, a hardworking, honorable, quiet life. Now, you know, Paul does not mean that these are the only things that's that has to do with holiness, or that even these are the big three, necessarily, we know from many other passages. But, but according to the Thessalonians' situation, according especially to the news from Titus, who has just come from that church and filling, has just filled in Paul about their situation, he writes about these three areas of Christian holiness that need special attention among them. Before I get into any specifics, I'll, I'll just point out then that not anyone's call to a holy life is going to be the same because we have our own struggles. We tend to focus sometimes about on those areas of our Christian lives where we are the most successful, godly people. And we tend to ignore or uh, denigrate those areas that we are perhaps not as interested in, not as successful in. But as John Owen pointed out, if we really hate sin and love God, then we'll be as watchful against everything that grieves the Lord as we are against everything that grieves us. Each of us will find that our battle is fought on the line at a particular place that is different from another in certain ways. Nevertheless, let us consider these important three points that he puts before us in the passage. First, sexual purity. He descends to particulars in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that, the first thing, you should abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word is, of course, porneia, that refers to any kind of relations outside of a man and his wife. Verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification, or holiness, and honor. Uh, Vessel, you say? Vessel is a Semitic way of speaking, and so your translation may well just smooth it out. Mine just gives you what he wrote, but leaves it for you to decide. It could mean um, uh, a wife or a spouse, and many of the early church fathers took this view, including Augustine, by the way. So uh, the word to possess can also, or in fact, usually means to, to take. So to take a vessel could mean to take a wife. And if this view is correct, Paul is basically saying the way to avoid sexual immorality is to take a wife and to enjoy your marriage, the RSV, takes this reading Paul I mean Peter elsewhere speaks about the wife as the weaker vessel so vessel could mean that but far more common is uh, the understanding reflected by the way in the paraphrase of the ESV the New American Standard NIV and many others that we should each possess our own bodies as holiness the vessel that being spoken of here being the um, as it were the body is the the vessel of the soul, and that is also a Semitic way of speaking as well as a Greek way of speaking, and it's used that way in other biblical passages. I think that's more likely, as well as in context, this verse is not addressed to men, but to the whole congregation, women included, as Calvin points out, and so uh, vessel is probably not wives, but in all likelihood, Paul is making the point that each one should control his or her own body in holiness, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Paul brings up this point, very much for the very same reasons that it needs to be brought up before us today. The people lived in such an environment that for so long had been, well, I mean, by, by really any standards, just toxic sexuality, radioactive sexuality, that, that, that any kind of sexual restraint was very foreign to that culture. It's, it's hard for us even to enter into that mind, for them to escape the habits of thought and the practices of the world around them needed particular exhortation. And even the word of judgment that he puts on the end, I mean, elsewhere Paul writes, don't be deceived. Don't let anyone convince you falsely, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor... Thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Uh, Paul is not uh, homophobic. He's, he's equal opportunity. Everybody who's indulging in all these sins all around you are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. The church then as now, though, is prone to certain kinds of deception. We don't mind people convincing us of things that we want to be convinced of somehow anyway, especially when the culture around us is going in such a strong current, in such a direction. When the gospel came to Thessalonica, the gospel was on a collision course with the prevailing sexual views of the day, that there's just no getting around it. It was completely foreign to their habits and understanding. And Paul knows that they need some plain-spoken clarity on this subject. And I think we do too. Maybe somebody says, well, I, I bet there are some kinds of pornea that won't hurt anyone or defraud anyone, to use Paul's word. Uh, no, that's not true. God is someone. You are certainly someone. And your mind and marriage, present or future, and spiritual life will definitely be hurt. And well, even if it's not seen, it's kind of like tolerating cracks in a dam beneath the water level, right? It's not seen, but of course, unless those are repaired, eventually the dam's going to collapse and there will be a lot of damage. So Paul speaks very plainly. It's, it's difficult enough, you know, to put on sexual faithfulness in a culture that admires or at least encourages and expects it. How much more in a culture that neither admires nor expects it, in which it seems that no one else is practicing it. So he spends a fair amount of time saying, this is God's will for you. Second, he then transitions to brotherly love. Verse 9, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia... But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and so forth. Brotherly love <laughs> was a revolutionary idea in their culture. It, it actually took a lot of getting used to. Um, they, they, had a, they had a strongly separated tribal culture with, with, with strict social classes, and I mean, it's not that they had, would have no idea brotherly love. What's that? I mean, uh, Plutarch, the Greek moralist, a century before this, had written a whole treatise on the love of brothers. But he was talking about brothers. He was talking about blood relatives. Now Paul says, in the, commission, in the Christian community, everywhere, however different your personality, or more particularly, however different your background, your custom. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male, female, Parthian, Scythian, brothers and sisters all. Brothers and sisters. What Plutarch said would be true of brethren in a real family is to be supremely true of brethren in God's family. Jews, Gentiles, slaveholders and slaves, rich and poor, various nationalities, all brethren and to love as such. And I realize I just preached a whole sermon on this a few weeks ago, so I will suffice it to say that Paul was only too well aware of how quickly problems had surfaced in all of his new churches and put a strain on the love and brotherhood of believers. that the, this, this tender new church in Thessalonica, right? He was there just three weeks. He was forced to leave. This is his first letter back. These tender new believers in Thessalonica who were already setting such an excellent example of unity and charity, not just there, but to all the brethren in Macedonia. He says in a rhetorical way, I, I really don't even need to write to you about this. It's a grace that you already have so excelled in, but you you need to build on your strengths more and more. Love is one of the best parts of holiness, and we need it. I mean, look, the, the pressures of the world, the flesh and the devil, they, they, tear, they tear at us. They come to a new church, they tear it apart. Like, we, we need this here. Do not think that, that, that you are going to be strong without this brotherly love. You need to, to, to be knit together in love. Uh, Love is, is the mortar that just holds the bricks together in the, in the edifice of God. And, and more and more, as the apostle says, even if we're doing fine, more and more, love is one of the very choice parts of holiness we need to press on. Third, he goes for a quiet and diligent life, uh, verses 11 and 12, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. All right. Um, So we we know exactly why he brought up this point. Uh, He comes back to it later, and I I will come back to it later with uh, uh, much more exposition and application when Paul does. Simply to say that uh, we know as he now transitions into the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know explicitly a little bit later on that some people were so excited waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that they felt it was pointless or perhaps unspiritual even to continue with a steady job. What are you going to do in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, right, we, we have brotherly love. We just covered point two. Practical brotherly love, right? We have other Christians that we can rely on, right? No, Paul says. That is not the way that you should live a holy life or love or bear witness to the Lord's return. And you will not only abuse the church's charity in the name of love, a subject we'll take up later, it's it's going to look, like to those outside, uh, very, very poorly. It's going to reflect very, very poorly upon you. You For for all these reasons, uh, he says... Uh, I exhort you in the Lord that, that you just aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, and walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. So I'll take, again, take this up later as he has a little more particular application in, in this and what it means for the church's charity to... Not be abused, but to be properly used to the glory of God, we'll consider next time. But these are the three areas of holiness that he particularly wishes the Thessalonians and Holy Spirit preserving for us to consider today. To summarize, profound temptations come to you from the culture in which we live our historical moment, some from your family background, some from your personality, some from your makeup in other ways, some from your life circumstances. Some of us are tempted because of our blessings. Some of us are tempted in other ways because of our trials. Every Christian finds the battle joined at a different place, but we are called to a holy life, both in general, across the board. And then in particular, especially in all the various ways in which we might be more particularly tempted or find ourselves in need. And therefore, Paul gives us applications of holiness. You can just go dot, dot, dot and fill in number four, five, and six for yourself. But before I go, I'd like briefly to consider with you these motivations for holiness. He he, he realizes that this uh, this teaching that he's given is going to be challenging. He's already given a very thorough gospel basis for these things in the previous chapters, of course, and I hate to just pass that by and refer you to previous ideas and sermons, but we, we are trying to take this as Paul gives it. So uh, we, we come to chapter 4. We recognize the therefore that's involved here. We are given all these particulars, but not without these three motivations to holiness. First, God's calling, he mentions. You know, verse 7 is really a statement that summarizes the whole passage. Well, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. God has called us to holiness. God's calling is the first motivation, which I would put before you is the greatest motivation that there is, that God has himself lovingly knowing you and all of your particular needs, hang-ups, sins, background, has loved you, has called you, has made you his person. God's calling is not that you should first be a Christian saint, and then he would call you. Oh no. He calls you as you are, and he never leaves you that way again. He himself has personally, effectually called you to himself. And our Father has said, be holy as I am holy. That is a wonderful motivation. Paul, Paul in, this, in this same passage here, emphasizes secondly, with some repetition, Christ's command. Christ's command. Um, You know, often he's on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's on the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. These instructions he says, I'm only reminding you of what Christ has commanded you. Uh, Verse 1, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus. That is to say, we are simply relaying his commandments to you. Or verse 2, you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, yeah, repeats it again. In fact, that, that word commandments that is here is not the ordinary word for commandments, the interlay word. This is an unusual word that usually means uh, military orders. U- usually it's in a military context that an officer gives orders to his men. But uh, the, the point here is in a number of ways, Paul is making the case that we are under orders from the commanding officer himself, the Lord Jesus. We we just remind you that we commanded you in the Lord Jesus. These are the commands of the Lord Jesus. Like He says, look, this this isn't my idea. This isn't just a good idea. This is the law. This is the law of the Lord. So it is Christ's command that I'm giving you. But third, we have the Holy Spirit's empowering. The Holy Spirit's empowering. Uh, Verse 8. He who rejects this doesn't reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And the rather unusual word order here, it's reversed in the original, puts the emphasis on the fact that the Spirit of God is holy. Holy. Again, the theme of the chapter, right? You you know that when we buy toys for our kids or grandkids this time of year, you've got to check the package because you always got to look for that fine print, you know what I'm talking about, where it says, battery's not included. Yeah. Got to make one more purchase. Okay, because you know what that means. It means that when you buy the toy, the power to make it work is, is not included. But that's not the kind of gift that God has given you, sir, or you, madam. God's not giving gifts like that. The gift of holiness includes the power the fullness of the power of the holy spirit in order to make it effective and so you see it's a very high calling be holy for i am holy it comes through a, to us comes to us in a number of specifics including right sexual purity including brotherly love including a diligent life but it also comes with the calling of our father it comes at the command of our Lord and it comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own and you are not left on your own. The Lord will be with you. In conclusion, holiness is a calling and it is the pursuit of a lifetime. It takes time, therefore, to be holy. We certainly don't start that way. And even when we take our last breath, we'll only have made so much progress. Author uh, Warren Wearsby was one time singing in the choir, and the leader said, we will stand and sing number number 325, take time to be holy. We'll sing verses 1 and 4. He said, if I had been sitting in the congregation instead of on the platform, I would have laughed out loud. Imagine a Christian congregation singing take time to be holy, but not even taking the time to sing the whole song. Well, if, if we can't take the time, less than four minutes, to sing a song about holiness, we're not likely to take the time to devote ourselves, as the Bible says, to perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So, very well said. Easy for me to give you a few minutes. You think, okay, I got it. Go home. Oh, No. It's, it's, uh, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Um, to l- live as it says you ought to live, or, well, frankly, in the translation here, it just says to live as you must live is something that's the call of a lifetime. Your forgiveness, justification, has made you happy. But let the better half of your salvation bring you onward to take time to be holy. Our world doesn't hear the music. Our world doesn't distinguish between the holy and the unholy. It seems like a complete mystery. Or to change the analogy, it's like those boys who broke into the department store at night and they didn't steal anything. They just swapped price tags. So the next morning, fur coats were selling for a buck and a half, and little pieces of costume jewelry were priced at thousands of dollars, right? The value of everything was turned on its head. That's the age in which we are living, where the world, the flesh, and the devil, if you like, has swapped all the price tags and everything. And to be a Christian with the calling of holiness in a place like Thessalonica or modern America, you must be kidding. Oh no, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And we need to be eager to grow. You ever ever ask a kid how old he is and he says something like, oh, I'm 12, going on 13, soon to be 14. To be eager to grow. How blessed and how refreshing it is when there are Christians who have seen these things, who hear the music and say, I wish to grow, to follow my eternal Father in the heavens. It is your destiny. Let's dance to the music. Let's pray. Gracious Father and our everlasting Savior, we thank you for such power that you have given, not just a word, What power to transform our lives and ultimately our relationships, our communities, the nations of the earth, and through such good news, you have freely given us a new identity, not based on class or race or any other superficial matter, not even based on who we are, but based upon Christ and what he has done. You have blessed us with forgiveness and righteousness, made us adopted and accepted given us assurance of our eternal life in him. We now, as your saints, as sons and daughters of the king, accepted in the beloved, say, lead on, O king eternal. Lead us in the better second half. The best is yet to come.